This week, Belk Files pre-pack emerges in record time. Garrett Debtors Equity Committee headed to mediation. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skeldon. Later, for our weekly deep dive, senior reporter Jim Holloway and senior legal analyst Kevin Eckhart will look into the aftermath of Citibank's mistaken wire transfer as Revlon's term loan agent. It's Friday, February 26th. Belk, a Charlotte, North Carolina-based, privately-owned department store chain, filed for Chapter 11 relief on Tuesday, February 23rd in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas, along with numerous affiliates, based on a restructuring support agreement that provided for a, quote, realignment of the capital structure through a deleveraging of $450 million of first and second lien term loan debt and the infusion of $225 million in new money. According to the plan, pre-petition first lien lenders would receive 55% of their claim in new first lien second out, or FLSO, loans, and the right to participate in their share of the new money financing. Of the $125 million of new money financing reserved for lenders, two-thirds would be open to existing first lien lenders, and the other one-third for existing second lien lenders. Second lien lenders would also be able to participate in the new money offering. However, the second lien lenders would not be able to roll up their loans or receive any additional payment on existing claims in new FLFO loans by participating. At a first day hearing Wednesday, Judge Marvin Isger confirmed the Belk debtors prepack, allowing the debtors to accomplish what their counsel described as a record-setting, quote, quickest prepack from filing to emergence, with emergence occurring later that afternoon. Given the fast-paced nature of the proceedings, due process concerns raised sua sponte by the court and in an objection lodged by the U.S. trustee were the focus of Wednesday's hearing. After debtors' counsel emphasized that the debtors went, quote, above and beyond to notice the world with a, quote, best-in-class effort contacting 90,000 different parties, Judge Isger explained that while notice was sufficient and there are no apparent due process violations, he was, quote, worried about people who may have fallen through the cracks. To ameliorate those concerns, the court proposed a due process order. After a mid-hearing break and some slight modifications, the due process order garnered the support of the UST, the debtors, and other parties, paving the way to an uncontested confirmation outcome. Judge Michael Wiles on Tuesday entered an order directing that mediation in the Garrett Motion competing plan dispute begin, quote, as soon as practicable, but no later than Thursday, February 25th. Judge Son Lame will serve as mediator, and mediation would conclude by March 2nd. Judge Wiles also reset the adjourned hearing on approval of the debtor's proposed disclosure statement and the Equity Committee's motion to terminate exclusivity for March 3rd at 11 a.m. Eastern should mediation fail. The order followed news on Monday that, according to Andrew Diederich of Sullivan and Cromwell, counsel to the Garrett Motion debtors, no deal on a compromise was reached with the official Equity Committee last weekend. However, Diederich indicated that the debtors are, quote, optimistic that the parties can bridge the gap between the debtors' preferred COH group plan and the equity committee's competing proposal, and said there are a comparatively modest number of, quote, moving pieces. Now, turning to the island of Puerto Rico. 
The 2021 Planned Support Agreement, disclosed on Wednesday in connection with the island's ongoing debt restructuring efforts, reflects, quote, a new and more favorable agreement with general obligation and PBA bondholders, according to the PROMISA Oversight Board, which also pointed out that the pact de-risks the structure, quote, consistent with a post-COVID outlook. The parties to the February 2020 PSA, which was the basis for the prior plan, agreed to mutually terminate that agreement upon entry into the 2021 PSA. Most notably, the deal now has the support of Monoline Insurers, Assured Guarantee, National Public Finance Corp., and Syncora. However, Assured has signaled that its support is conditioned on reaching restructuring agreements involving other credits, including the Highways and Transportation Authority, or HTA, and the Convention Center District Authority, or CCDA. On Tuesday, Puerto Rico's House of Representatives approved House Bill 120, the far-ranging pension policy and debt restructuring legislation that the PROMISA Oversight Board flagged earlier this month. The board has stepped up its warnings against enactment of this measure, stressing that the Commonwealth government is, quote, statutorily enjoined from passing and implementing the bill. The legislation also lacks the endorsement of the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF. The measure now heads to the Senate. Top red stories last week included breaking Transocean executes private exchange agreements of 0.5% exchangeable bonds due 2023. Litigation coverage McKinsey settlement triggers dispute between New York AG and counties over settlement of opioid claims. And Citibank's claim against Revlon front and center after wire transfer ruling. And now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, New York. Greetings all, and welcome to the show. And a week that has two things going for it. It's no longer February, and the worst of the earnings season seems to be behind us. So on the first day of March, we have a sale hearing in Hertz, a hearing in Belk and earnings from Unity and Hovnanian. March the 2nd, hearings in Highland Capital and Redpath. March 3rd, confirmation hearing in Valaris, rejection motion hearings in Gulfport, and a DS hearing in Garrett motion. March 4th, a DIP amendment hearing in Rent Path, trial in CBL and Associates, and a DS hearing in Feral Gas Partners. Friday, March 5th, there's a status conference in Cedril Partners, and that's all she wrote. Back to New York. Great. Now here's Jim and Kevin on the City Revlon situation. And welcome back, Kevin. And I'm happy that it is the end of February, of which the best can be said is that it's only 28 days. And today we will be talking about the recent decision from the Southern District of New York, which lets some lenders keep 500 million Citibank actually wired to them back in August. So, Kevin, what is the background on this exactly? Yeah, Jim, this is the one everyone wants to hear about. Uh, Here's the gist. Back in April 2020, Revlon announced a recapitalization transaction involving a transfer of some valuable IP to a new brand co-entity, which would borrow based on that IP and license it back to Revlon. So a sale license back, if you will. Uh, Revlon's 2016 term loan would be amended to extend the maturity to 2025. Lenders holding the majority of the term loan opposed, arguing the IP transfer was verboten under the credit agreement. So Revlon had consenting lenders extend some new revolver commitments, which gave them the majority and let them vote in favor of the deal, which closed in May. The dissenters threatened litigation before the deal closed and then again after. Then, on August 11th, out of the blue, Citibank wired the exact amount due under the 2016 term loan to all of the lenders, 
about $893 million worth, uh, including principal and interest. This must have shocked those dissenters, considering they caused their new agent, uh, there's kerfuffle about removing Citibank, but we won't get into that, to sue the company over the May transaction the very next day. Why would the company pay off the term loan without any notice or apparent source of funds, including amounts due to lenders that had threatened to sue over a refi and would actually sue the next day? Turns out it was a wire department error. Citibank was trying to pay interest to the lenders and they sent the whole enchilada instead. On August 12th, Citibank asked for the money back and friendly lenders, uh, the consenting lenders, sent back about $393 million. But the lenders opposed to the refi via their hedge fund managers refused to return about $500 million. So Citibank sued. Uh, some arguments ensued over the fact that Citibank didn't sue the actual recipients of the money, overseas investment funds, but the parties worked through it and a five-day trial ensued before U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman in December. So what exactly was the key issue? I mean, why shouldn't these funds have to return the money? If Citi wired me $500 million and I said I was keeping it, I imagine there would be the entire force of the federal government roosting on my front lawn. Does this mean if there's an accidental transfer to me, I can keep it? There used to be a card and old monopoly game that lets you do just that. Yeah, bank error, collect $200, right? Well, the trick here is that there's a New York law rule called the discharge for value exception or defense. You're 100% correct. If your bank drops an extra $1 million in your account by accident, you can't go out and spend it on vintage guitars. But if the bank had owed you $1 million and did that, you get to keep the money, even if the debt wasn't immediately due and payable, so long as the bank can, can't show that it was totally unreasonable for you to believe that the accidental deposit was made in satisfaction of that debt. So basically, it shifts the burden from you to show you you were entitled to the $1 million in your account to the bank to show that it was uh, ridiculous for you to believe you could keep it. So that was the issue. Uh, during the trial, you had the hedge fund defendants saying, well, we got the money. It was exactly our share of the amount owed, so we figured Revlon meant to pay. How could we have possibly guessed Citibank would make a $900 million accidental wire? And you had Citibank's lawyers cross-examining them as to how they could have possibly thought Revlon would pay them, considering first, Revlon is insolvent and struggling, and second, they had threatened to sue Revlon over the May refi and ended up doing so. The defendants' witnesses responded that, well, maybe Revlon's benefactor and sponsor, Ronald Perlman, just wrote a check, maybe to prevent that litigation. Or maybe Revlon was doing some, quote, creative restructuring. Well, Kevin, would it be unfair to say that that sounds just a little far-fetched? Absolutely not. Uh, Perlman had not provided any indication that he intended to write a $1 billion check to pay off that term loan. And it doesn't make any sense he would do that to avoid the coming litigation over the refi. After all, the company knew these lenders were opposed to the refi before it closed in May. So if they were that scared of litigation and had funds available from Perlman, why not just pay off the term loan in May instead of doing the whole IP sale license back deal and manufacturing consent for the term loan amendment? Wouldn't that make more sense than doing a deal over the objections of aggressive lenders letting them get the pieces in place to sue you, and then having Perlman write a check to pay off the term loan out of nowhere. And the idea that Revlon could have raised money from a source other than Perlman to pay the term loans just doesn't hold water. 
The defendants pointed to the refi in May as evidence the company knew how to refinance debt, but that deal took almost a month to put together, during which the company made several public announcements that it was in the works, and the dissenting, dissenting letters had time to send threatening letters opposed to it. So how could Revlon raise another $900 million as a distressed, probably insolvent company to pay off the term loan without anybody knowing about it or any public announcements? The phrase beggar's belief comes to mind. And again, if the company could raise enough to pay off the term loan after mortgaging valuable IP, why didn't it just raise that money in May instead of doing the IP deal? And of course, we, we all know that his honor didn't see it that way. <laughs> right, as is sometimes the case. In his decision on February 16th, the judge basically found the defendant's witnesses credible and relied on the uniqueness of the error, which he called a black swan event. Basically, he found that however crazy it might have been for the lenders to believe Revlon had both the means and the motive to pay off the term loan in August, it would have been even more crazy for them to suspect at the time the wire was sent that the money had been sent by accident. Big banks just don't accidentally send out $900 million every day. Of course, distressed borrowers also don't pay off $900 million in term loans out of the blue every day either. At the end of the opinion, the judge also hints at the sort of policy or, or rational equity basis for his decision. He notes that of all the parties involved, Citibank was the one that should bear the burden of the mistake since it made the mistake. It's a pretty tough lesson for the wire department. In, indeed. And so what now? Does Revlon still owe that $500 million? Well, that's the big question. Assuming the decision holds up on appeal, and Citibank has said, of course, it, it will appeal, it's pretty clear that Revlon doesn't owe that $500 million to those hedge fund defendants anymore since they've been paid off. Um, Revlon may, however, owe money to Citibank under the doctrine of equitable sub subrogation. This is a concept that is commonly invoked in the insurance world. Um, to give you a, a real-world example in PG&E, there were about $13 billion in subrogation claims held by property insurance companies that had paid homeowners, um, compensated them for the damage done to their property by PG&E fires, and then asserted those claims against PG&E. Here, the insurers would be Citibank, and they would say, well, we paid off part of this debt that Revlon owed to these lenders, and therefore, we step into their shoes the same way those insurers stepped into the victim's shoes in PG&E. So, yeah, Citibank will argue that, like the insurers, it paid Revlon's $500 million debt to those lenders, and therefore, it now has the rights of those lenders against Revlon. Of course, it's not that simple. Generally, when someone pays the debt of a third party as a volunteer, um, out of the goodness of their heart, they don't get a subrogation claim. There has to be some duty or privity, like you're an insurer or a guarantor. Here, of course, someone objecting to Citibank's claim, which could be Revlon, the remaining lenders, note holders, or an unsecured creditors committee if they were to file, would argue Citibank was a volunteer by sending the funds by accident. They were never on the hook to Revlon or the lenders themselves. Also, there is something called the made whole doctrine, which subordinates subrogation claims to the full payment of the whole debt. Um, let's go back to PG&E. This was an argument that the fire victims made in PG&E. They said that the insurance claimants, these subrogation claimants, shouldn't get a dollar from PG&E until all of their losses were compensated. 
not just the insured losses that were covered by the insurer. So emotional injury, pain and suffering kind of stuff. Um, that ended up settling. Uh, here, the remaining lenders, the folks who sent back the $393 million, could make a similar argument. They could say Citibank only partially paid off Revlon's debt on the term loan, and therefore, under the made whole doctrine, until all of the lenders are paid, not just that $500 million, Citibank can't collect a single dime, effectively putting Citibank behind the remaining lenders. We don't know how all this is going to play out. Revlon has a selfish interest in defeating Citibank's subrogation claim, uh, which would protect a $500 million windfall. And of course, unsecured creditors and the remaining lenders also have that motive. But Revlon has very close ties to Citibank, and so does Perlman. Revlon could try to cut a deal that, that allowed Citibank's claim or, or agreed not to fight it. But even if that worked, Citibank's shareholders and unsecured creditors could sue the board for breach of fiduciary duty for basically giving away a $500 million gift. Um, it could get pretty messy. At some point, someone is going to have to file a lawsuit. Citibank's claim, to the extent it is valid as subrogation, isn't automatic. It's not like they just step into the documents as an assignee. They would have to bring a claim to vindicate that subrogation claim amount and whether it was secured or unsecured. Um, unless there is a deal, of course. Uh, the, the now paid off lenders that got the $500 million could decide to buy Citibank's subrogation claim at a big discount to get back into the capital structure, which would make for some fun disputes going forward. Or Citibank could settle with the lenders and leave them with some of their old claims still around, allowing them to reopen their lawsuit over the refi, which was dismissed when the dissenting lenders were accidentally paid off by Citibank. Uh, my money's on some kind of deal because Citibank must desperately want out of this mess, and the returning lenders are playing with house money. And no one wants to leave this case on the books as precedent or even worse, have the appeals court affirm and make it capital P precedent um, for this kind of situation where the money is sent out accidentally and people get to keep it. The LSTA has, of course, warned of further knock on effects in the loan market, but it's such an unusual situation that seems a bit far fetched. I guarantee you, though, that credit agreements from now on and agency agreements will include a provision requiring lenders to return mistaken payments. Oh, so great. It'll be good for eventually be somebody someday, those drafting the language, I guess. Well, thank you, Kevin, as always, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And back to Connor in New York. Thanks, Jim. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find our podcast on the reorg.com media page, Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope you and your families are healthy and safe. See you next Friday.